0: Welcome to the show. She's Amy Oust. He's Scotty Kipfer. Welcome to the show.
1: Today, we've got uh, a a guy who was named the 2013 CCMA Rising Star Award winner. In addition to consecutive 2013-2014 Male Artist of the Year nominations, followed by an additional nod in 2018, received back-to-back CCMA Award nominations in 2015-2016 for Songwriter of the Year and a pair of 2016 nominations for Single and Album of the Year. In 2017, I'm not done, in 2017, <laughs> crowned the Male Artist of the Year and Fans Choice Award winner at the Alberta Country Music Association Awards. Bobby Wills, how are you?
2: I'm fantastic, especially after that intro. I feel pretty good about myself right, right I, now. We,
1: what I'm getting at with all, all of these accolades we're mentioning is you're a dude that knows how to get things done. <laughs>
2: I wish that that was actually how that happened um, but I'm surrounded by people that know how to get things done and I'm just sort of trying to make some music in the process. So I'm very very lucky to uh, to have a team that does most of the heavy lifting for me, if if I'm being honest.
1: We're getting a little bit more in depth with who we are speaking to and we wanted to hear maybe people who haven't heard your whole story. Uh, how you got your start in country music? Have we spoke a couple of years ago and you had mentioned something about an open mic night
2: yeah i was a um you know shower singer maybe is the best way to put it I'm, I'm actually uh shy isn't the right term for me but when it comes to music i always had a little bit of um, shyness and so i had sort of been poking around it i didn't grow up with music and and uh i was backpacking through australia and the guys had heard me sing around the house and stuff and and uh, went out to a pub one night and there was a band doing a uh you know like a jam night and um uh, they wanted me to get up and sing, and I told them I wasn't going to do that. And then uh, one of the guys bet me twenty bucks um, that not only would I not do it, but that I would get booed off stage. <laughs> so we we had a good laugh and a beer, and I and uh, a couple of um, glasses of courage later, I took the twenty bucks and I went up and sang. And the only country song they knew was the dance because I guess it had been big there. And I sang it, and the place kind of reacted positively. Um, the bar was fairly full, and I got a really great reaction, and the fire was lit.
0: Are you stealing cars, Bob?
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm. I, I was hoping that I wouldn't set this alarm off. Just give me a second. I'll get my uh, stuff out of the window here. <laughs> <laughs> I only steal them during the day. I don't. I don't actually do it. At nighttime, it's too cold.
0: Broad daylight. Dude. Well,
2: nobody thinks you're doing anything wrong. <laughs> so, when I got back from Australia, the fire was kind of lit, and I was, um, you know, doing some open mic night stuff and, and uh, lots of karaoke and, you know, those things you do. And um, I still was very shy about it, and I was still, you know, I really thought, you know, I dreamed about a career in it, but I didn't really thinking that was something that was possible. Um, you know, I got in some bands over the next year, year and a half and played some bars and did some of that stuff. Um, my dad is, a um, actually really Southern gospel was probably the primary music in our house. Um, I grew up in a real Christian, real strong Christian home and that was generally the music, but, um, Johnny Cash, Merle Haggard and, and Waylon and Willie made it in there too. So, um, I grew up on a lot of that stuff and, um, you know, it was sort of always in my blood. I was always, uh, drawn to the songwriting, uh, in country music. Um, you know, musically, I, I, I liked it, but I liked, you know, at that time in my life, I also liked Metallica and U2 an awful lot. So, um, it was the songwriting and the storytelling, uh, and in particularly in that era of country music that that was so strong. And I've always, I've always felt it was a very, very compelling piece of the puzzle. And that's, that's probably the reason that I gravitated to country music, uh, you know, as I got into my late teens.
0: You mentioned your dad and sort of the influence that was in your house. I walked into uh, to the studio today and Amy said, man, I really want to talk to Bobby about the adoption thing. So let's touch on that for a second, because you were raised in a house that was f- certainly filled with music. But your biological side is a whole different story, isn't it?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I always wanted to participate in music and outside, literally outside of church. I did not participate in music. We played hockey and, you know the things that Canadian kids do. And my family wasn't particularly musical um, outside of, you know, the casual fan thing. So um, I sort of had this burning desire that didn't fit with anybody around me. And I think that's potentially why I was so quiet about it. Mm. Um, It just was a little bit of a crazy, kind of a goofy dream, really. You know, um, if you don't grow up in it, I think people generally look at it like you're out of your mind to try this, which might still be true, by the way. (laughs) Um, And it wasn't until... Um, I got a phone call from an adoption uh, registry where they match up families that have both registered. Um, and my mother, my biological mother, had put her name on the registry. And right before I went to Australia, I had entered my name um, to the registry. And and if I'm being truthful, it was in the hopes that my biological parents were rich and famous. Uh, <laughs> I, I was quite young at the time and I did want to meet them and I was hopeful that that would happen. And, and uh, so when I got back from Australia, about a year after I got back, I guess, I got a call from the registry and they said, they, you know, we found your mother. So the outcome was two things happened that day. Um, the first thing I found out was that I had, a, I had siblings in Edmonton that were younger than me, uh, which was only three hours away. And uh, also made a plan to go to Toronto. Uh, My mom was living in Sterling, Ontario at that time and made a plan to go visit her. So it was literally 24 hours later, I was in my car on the way to Edmonton.
1: How did you feel about that? Because I kind of can relate with you. I just met my biological father just a few years back, realized that I had a a sibling as well. And so you kind of feel all of those emotions, don't you?
2: Oh, it was crazy. I, I, um, I mean, just the emotion of meeting a biological parent alone was like, wow, this is about to happen. And I was excited about it. I'm not sure I really understood the ramifications, but the... The little brother and sister was something I had never considered. Just never occurred to me that there could be siblings out there. just wasn't on the radar for whatever reason. And so that was super exciting and very scary.
0: And then what about the the whole music side of things, right? because your your biological family was was very musical, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, and the introduction to my little brother and sister was the first part of that. i had I told them that I was singing, and they said, "Oh, bring a guitar, and we'll all hit sit around." So we sat around when I first met them play guitar and and they both sang like birds um they're both really great singers and they and they you know they started to tell me a little bit about the family history and that there was a lot of musicality in the family so i flew out to toronto and i met my mom and that sort of encouraged me a little bit on the music side and then i got a phone call about six months later from my mom and she said i have located your dad um and he wants to get into touch is that okay Um, So again, events moved fairly quickly. He came out to Calgary and I met him and he had a brother who lived here. And uh, that's when I discovered that um, my whole family on his side are in the arts. Uh, My grandmother was a classically trained um, professional piano player. She played classical music in Vancouver in the orchestra. Um, My cousin is a Juno winning jazz drummer. Um, my little brother is an um, unbelievable sax player, and at that time he would have been 11. And so it smacked me in the face uh, extremely quickly in that, in that few days spending that time with my father. It, it became wildly apparent um, that music was a blood thing, like wildly apparent.
0: How does that affect a guy when you have this sort of desire to pursue music? but it's not really much more than that until you find out that it's in your blood.
2: Yeah. I, I, I came home from that trip to Toronto and in 48 hours had quit my job and started a band. So my parents here, my adoptive parents uh, were, were very concerned. <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> that doesn't sound like a parent thing at all. <laughs>
2: yeah. Uh, and I think to be fair, my biological parents were probably like, Oh no, what have we done? Um, but, I uh I just I knew I needed to start and that waiting wasn't gonna work. I was in my early twenties already and um you know, just the way the music business or at least how I perceived it at the time, it was, you know, time to get going now. Uh so I went out on the road right away, um, started a road band, we went and started playing gigs all over Canada. And um as Scotty will attest, I, I still can't play guitar worth <laughs> a Uh, And I started real late for that reason. But on my first, I'll say, five months of gigs, I had my guitar literally plugged into my guitar right into my back pocket and was not playing guitar for the first six months. I mean, that's how green I was. I had no music experience. I couldn't read music. I couldn't play music. I couldn't do any of that stuff. So it was trial by fire. But I don't know that without that connection to answer your question in a long form, um, without that sort of impetus of, hey, this isn't just goofy, you better go get this, mm. um, I probably never would have.
1: And so now looking back on that, uh, you know, the young Bobby Wills, what would you have told yourself, if anything different, uh, you know, getting into the music career?
2: Um, I, number one, it's it's a job, not a party. I had to learn that the hard way. Um, every once in a while I still have to learn that the hard way. Um <laughs> You know, and, and that was, uh, you know, in those first, uh, that first year in the bars was just a party really more than anything else. I mean, there was an education happening, you know, when we had time for that, but mostly it was just next beer stuff. But, um, you know, the camaraderie of that was wonderful, but it wasn't, I didn't really, it could have been treated as a job better. And then the second thing I would tell myself is do not fall in love with a bartender. <laughs> or, or that
1: sounds like a song title right there. <laughs>
2: Oh, yeah. So, you know, and I I joke, I don't actually have any regrets, but I did do what my agent told me not to do, which was don't date the bar staff uh, while you're there. And I did, and I fell in love with a girl. Um, And uh, in eight short months, we were engaged. And uh, less than nine months later, uh, we had our first son. And less than 18 months later, we were divorced. So... Um, I would tell myself that part of the story, um, but I wouldn't undo the children.
1: You released your debut album independently back in 2010. And, you know, we're fast forwarding now to uh, 2020. What have you learned since then musically about yourself?
2: Uh, I think more than anything else is just to trust my instincts. And that sounds goofy, but it's, you know, this business is so rife with people telling you what you should do and how you should sound and what's current and all these different topics that come up and they're important that you understand because it's very competitive and it's a tough business but you also have to trust your instincts about who and what you are i think i had a pretty good understanding of what kind of artist i was and you know potentially even where the ceiling on what i was capable of was and um you know it's been a tough time sticking to that sometimes but if I've learned anything, it's that, and to trust my instincts.
1: Have you felt over the years that the face of uh, country music and the face of radio has changed?
2: I don't know if the face of radio has changed that much. I mean, there's a competitive landscape that's always shifting, so there's some change there. but I, I don't think radios from my perspective hasn't really changed from the standpoint. They've always treated me well. and um and you know, even when they haven't played something of mine, it, you know it, it hasn't been. Um, like there's some major change in how they're doing things, and that's why. At least that's not my perception. Um, certainly the, the music has changed. And, you know, I don't think there's a good or bad version of that. I think you just have to decide what you like and what you don't like. Um, and so it's very, very diverse now. I would say it's as diverse as it's ever been uh, in terms of the different, you know, song to song on any radio station now, what you could possibly hear. Um, and I think ultimately that's a good thing. But it can make it a little hard sometimes to to sort of pinpoint what you want to do next.
0: In terms of song selection, production choices, uh, even as far as you know, hopping in a room with a couple of writers and and setting out to write a song, how much of the Bobby process is thinking ahead to? What's radio gonna like? What's gonna resonate versus purely writing something for your own enjoyment?
2: It's it's ironically that has been a sort of been an arc that's very interesting to me, and I think it's I don't know if it's I don't think it's unique to artists, but I'll, I'll let me answer that question this way. In 2010, I did not care what was happening at radio. I wanted to make a record I loved, and I did that. Um, in 2012, I met. Um, t- you know, Walt Aldridge and Mike Pyle, who would be the primary reason that I ever got a shot at anything. And we made a record just like that. Um, show some Respect was the first song I ever wrote with those two guys. And um, that's the kind of record we made, and i'm I'm super proud of uh, of that record because it was we didn't have label support when we were making it. We didn't have uh, a budget of you know what you'd like to have and those guys for whatever reason decided they'd work with me anyway and then when we got into some success it got a little tougher you started thinking about well we got on the radio we had two top tens and then the next two didn't do quite so well and some of the conversation was well are they too country um and scotty you'll remember those times and mm. and uh, so we we adjusted a little bit and i think we did that with um integrity i don't we didn't totally leave what we did and we did the crazy enough record um and we did start to write a little bit more with the idea that you know what do we need you know we got the ballads so now we need a tempo and some of those kinds of discussions so surely the strategy started to appear a little bit more um and that was great we had success with that record um but it kind of fell off at the end again so again and this was um the florida georgia line and the bro country thing was really blowing up real hard at that time or had already blown up and it was getting tough to compete with some of that. And so we did adjust a little again with tougher than love. And that was the most successful record we ever made, because I think we found the right balance between, um, you know, doing what we do and still sort of thinking about some of those strategies to the point of your question. And the next record was In comes the night. And I went back to, I don't care what's happening radio because I just don't know what that is. And I need to be doing something that just suits me and we have some momentum. So it'll be fine. Um, didn't turn out quite like that.
0: <laughs> it's so interesting me, because was- like In Comes the night is probably one of my favorite Bobby wills recordings. And I mean, you know what a huge fan I am of yours. So you were talking about, uh, you know, coming off of two top tens, and then we put out If It Was That Easy, and you and I did that Dean Brody tour, and the one thing that really stuck out to me was we were playing the, the CCMA Fan Fest, and I think that was about 2013, just before Crazy Enough came out. So If It Was That Easy was the third single off of that record, and uh, we, we didn't have quite the chart success that we had with Show Some Respect and Somebody Will but what i found going out and playing these songs with you is that that song really resonated with people and they were singing that back more than anything else that we had put out at that time so how do you measure success in in the brain of bobby wills do you measure it based on chart position and and sales numbers or do you look at how a song resonates with a crowd that you sort of measure your success by
2: yeah that's a tough question to answer because both those things have their place Mm -hmm. um i uh, for me for my soul there is nothing that feels better than people connecting with music that you've been a part of there's just nothing better than that so ultimately when i look back on all the years and 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 try to look to the future that's the thing that i'm looking for um the chart success and those numbers become it's it's the weirdest thing because i i know as an as an artist i spent looking the early days spent a lot of time going you know, why won't they play my music? Mine's better than so-and-so's. And really had that that whole new artist ego, lack of understanding, sort of general thing. Um, and then when I got on the charts, um, I found it was, like, harder. Hmm. Like, hits made it all harder for me. It was easier to walk around with the chip on my shoulder and say that I wasn't being treated fairly uh, than it was to actually be treated fairly by... Um, radio and the powers that be and have hits, um, I found that harder.
1: That actually makes a lot of sense. Uh,
2: yeah, and so the grounding for me is playing the music for people. And it's funny that you said that, Scotty. Um, Incomes Night did not do very well at radio uh, or Spotify, for that matter. And it is, if I play that song at any venue, it is the 25-somethings in the front three rows singing it word for word every That's... single night and I cannot explain that to you but it is a wonderful sort of reminder that this is about music and it's good and they like it and that feels great right
1: you actually put an awesome quote on your Facebook a little while back and uh, we loved it it said what I've learned so far chasing a dream happens one small step at a time there are no leaps and bounds it's about laying brick by brick it's putting the work in right Bobby
2: yeah, it is, you know. And I, I, I get that. It's funny as an artist, like I, especially in the early days. I don't get so much anymore. But I used to get emails like daily from people going, "Hey, I'm trying to do this. What would you recommend?" And I, you know, I always said the same thing. I, I don't even know what I'd recommend. I just know that today you have to do something that pushes your agenda. So I want to be a songwriter, and that's my whole dream. Well, then the only thing I can tell you to do for sure is to write a song today, and. The song you write today might not be good enough, but it might be the, you know, the first brick, as they say, to the next song, which might be the next brick to the next song that gets you to a hit song. And for me, that's the only advice I can really give, because there is no other route than to do the work and put it out there. Like you have to do the work and then be bold enough to share it. And if you're going to be bold enough to share it, you have to be open enough to accept the fact that it may not be as good as you think it is. And that's usually where everything comes off the rails for new artists. Because you put your heart and your soul and you create something and you're like, oh, this is the best thing ever. And you're convinced of it. And then you put it out and you ask for opinions, which is scary in general terms, with the arts. And someone comes back and goes, this isn't good enough. And that's where a lot of you know, people that are chasing the dream or thinking about chasing the dream drop off right there. You know, and and the only thing I can tell you to do is just write another one and send that out.
0: I've had that conversation in Nashville a number of times. And it, it seems like inevitably that conversation comes around to the ones who make it are the ones that stick it out.
2: For sure. And, and you no, know, you don't like dreams are funny, because they don't always lead you where you, you know, you sort of have this path. pre-thought of and oh this dream will happen and then you know it's like buying lottery tickets i'll just win and it'll be fine you know but what i found was that doing the work without a direction led me to like-minded people and i mentioned earlier that i ended up with one of my heroes like one of my all-time songwriting heroes like on the planet i mean i loved his music in the 80s i i can remember reading his name on liner notes in ronnie milsap records and somehow I ended up in Vail, Colorado, in a lodge for a week writing songs with my hero. And it's like, well, how do you make these contacts in the music industry? And again, I, I don't know how to answer that other than to say they kind of came to me. Um, and that's not a talent conversation. That's a, hey, I met this guy. I think you'd like him. You want to hang out with us? Right. Thing. And I would have never done any of that if I hadn't gotten past the first heartbreak and the first no.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, so- and then now all of a sudden I've got like this, this this group of friends That are writing hit songs at Radio Now um, Who five years ago or six years ago When I first met them Couldn't get a cup of coffee doing anything So I had booked my very first writing trip to Nashville Which is to say that I actually had co-writes That I was able to book And again, through through friends of friends of friends kind of a thing And um, I, I had booked an appointment with a fella named wade kirby and wade had actually literally had the number one uh song the week i was writing with him um it's a george Strait's song called uh, i saw god today and i met him and we wrote a great song that day with another fellow by the name of michael white and um that made that first record that man with no past in fact that was the song we wrote was man with no past and wade and i kind of hit it off and i called him a couple months later and i said hey i'm coming back i gotta finish this record i'm wondering if, if you'll write with me again and i sort of anticipated he might say no just given all his success and he said yes and he said would you mind if i bring my other buddy in mike pyle to the right and i said sure fast forward to the right we write a song called dunquittin which is still one of my i still think is one of the best songs i've ever been a part of and um we finished the right and mike says well how long are you in town and i've just met him and he says how long are you in town and i said well i'm actually here for a week uh, and he said, oh, are you writing? And I said, well, no, um, actually, Larry Wayne Clark, who you guys would, would also know, is a Canadian guy. Um, and he had canceled um, two rights for that week. Now, I found out later that he was quite ill and actually passed away uh, a couple of years ago now. But he had canceled, and I had nothing on the books. And I wasn't exactly, you know, in vogue in the sense that people were fighting to write with me. And so I told Mike I got a cancellation. And he said, well, why don't you come down to Muscle Shoals? And I'm thinking, what the hell is a muscle shoal? <laughs> uh, and a uh, little town in northern Alabama that's got a bit of a reputation. Um, and so I thought, well, what the hell? i got nothing else to do, so I'll go down. So I drove down with him, wrote another song with a buddy of of his, and he says to me, he says, I got this friend. His name is Walt Aldridge. And, of course, I immediately knew who he was because I, this guy was reverent in my mind. And um, he says... Uh, he hasn't really been writing much. He's actually a professor at the University of Northern Alabama now because he just got kind of tired of it. You know, he did it for 25 years or whatever it was. And he's just taking a little different path now. But he might be willing to write with us. He says, Don't, you know, he doesn't say yes to very many people. So if he says no, don't take it personally. But do you want me to ask him? And I said, Well, yeah. And he asked him. So I randomly meet a co writer who randomly takes me to Muscle Shoals because. I have a cancellation who randomly introduces me to my hero who decides for some reason to write with me. And then we sit down for the very first time. In fact, the song started on a ski lift and then we sit down and write the song. And the very first song we write was the most important song of my career. Like luck is for those who work hard, I guess is sort of the phrase, right?
0: Right. You mentioned Larry Wayne Clark. I want to touch on this because Larry was such a special figure in my life too, in my career. And the first time I went to Nashville, I was showing up to write with Larry at 10 o'clock in the morning. He had his coffee on. and I want to find out what your experience was like with Larry. Did you get the pot of coffee? Did you get the the Nashville drive around?
2: Yeah, I got all those things. Larry and Maggie were so wonderful. And um, again, another one of those moments in my career that I would not have been successful without. Larry had a gift for working with young artists. He had a gift and um so they put the coffee on yeah that was my experience and i had never done a co-write he was my very first nashville co-write and as a lot of people tell me that he was there first and um he walked me through the etiquette he explained to me how the town worked he walked me through how publishing works and gave me a sense of confidence and he did all of that in like the first 15
0: minutes it's crazy isn't it
2: well and then i you know i mentioned wade kirby to you i wrote with wade kirby that same week for the first time and i and i think that i handled that co-write professionally in a way that i might not have if larry hadn't sort of explained to me what the expectations are in these bigger rooms right and and then wade and i become very good friends and you and i just told you the rest of that story so you know, like Larry and Maggie were wonderful. And we stayed in touch with them over the years. And anytime we were in town, they would take us around and show us things and do the tour. And we'd have dinner with them. And uh, it, they were the first people that I introduced my wife to in Nashville and, and our little one. And, you know, just uh, amazing memories.
0: Let's move on to uh, a little game we like to call Turn Us On. This is where yeah. we ask you.
1: <laughs> it's not as sexy as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
0: This is where we ask you to turn us on to something that you've recently discovered. This could be a Netflix series. It could be a product that you fell in love with immediately. Just something that you've discovered that you want to turn us on to.
2: Oh, man. You know, I hate this game, and I'll tell you why. I am a voracious reader and a voracious, like, music guy. Like, I am in constant motion as it relates to, you know, music and books, so that's a tough one for me to answer. So I'm going to answer it in a weird way. Um, I'm reading the new Malcolm Gladwell book called Talking to Strangers, and it has absolutely spun my head around. So I'd encourage you all to read that. And I just got turned on to a fellow by the name of Randy Montana, who actually I'd just been writing with. And I really didn't understand his – I hadn't really been up to date on his music or like his artist career, and I went backward and listened, and holy smokes. So those are two.
0: Malcolm Gladwell and Randy Montana. Mm-hmm. Cool.
1: All right, we have another one for you, Bobby. If you if you've got the time, do it. Okay, it's uh, five questions. It's kind of a rapid round thing, and so you just need to answer as quickly as possible. Do not think too hard on it.
0: That's not a problem for me. <laughs> <laughs> Question number one: Whiskey or gin? Whiskey.
1: Beach or ski hill? Oh, Beach. Obviously, it's freezing where you are.
0: <laughs> yeah. Here's
1: a tougher one for you.
0: What's What's the song that you wish you wrote? Uh, the House That
2: Built
1: Me. Ah, oh, that's a good one. Okay, you could tour with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be?
0: Keith Whitley. Nice. And your dream stage to play on?
2: Ooh. You know, I honestly, I've been so lucky to do so many of those already. Um, I spent some of my early life in the Boston area, so I'm gonna say Boston Garden.
0: Ooh, nice. Interesting answer. (laughs) It
2: doesn't even really exist anymore, but that's
0: okay. Uh, I just got to touch on your house that built me. Uh, have you heard the Tanya Tucker version yet? I have not. Oh, dude. You got to go check it out. Now
1: we're turning you on.
0: <laughs> I, I yeah, you are. I can officially say I've turned on Bobby Wills. <laughs> if we're being honest, that was a long time ago, Scotty.
1: <laughs> <laughs> hey, Bobby, thank you so much for uh, speaking with us here at the show.
2: You bet. I love you both. And thanks for having me. Thanks, buddy.
1: Have fun. Thanks, Bobby.
2: No more stealing cars. I've actually got one in my sights right now. <laughs> nice.
1: <laughs> Talk soon.
0: Talk soon, guys. Hell of a guy, that Bobby Wills.
1: He's always a good time. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Bobby.
0: Social media.
1: Let's talk about it.
0: Instagram. Mm -hmm. Facebook. Yep. Twitter. Yep. At the show on the go.
1: Follow us. Like like us. us.
0: (laughs) So culty. Follow us. Like us. Love us.
1: He's Scotty Kipper. She's Amy Oust. Welcome to the show.